is the founder and CEO at Volt. The company is a technology developer and product innovator with a focus on new generation real-time payments infrastructure and open banking. He is responsible for managing strategic relationships, developing strategy and planning, and driving international expansion. Tom previously founded IFX Payments in 2005, a multi-billion dollar turnover fintech business operating across Europe and the Middle East. So without further ado, Tom, welcome to InCheck with Fintech. Thanks, man. Great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. We obviously know each other for a little while, so uh, it was a long time that you uh, should be joining us. So uh, yeah, it's good to uh, finally have you here. We got there in the end, man. We got there in the end. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, we always start with a bit of an introduction uh, on yourself. Would you mind giving the listeners a bit of an introduction on the persona Tom Greenwood? Uh, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. Um, I previously founded a business back in 2005 called uh, IFX Payments, um, which is uh, in embedded finance and banking as a platform um, these days. And uh, yeah, pretty big business in seven countries across uh, Europe and the Middle East. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, that was great. Uh, but I was in that role for 15 years or so. And um, uh, was uh, looking for my next venture and um, I had this crazy idea called Vault, which uh, turned out to not be so crazy after all. And uh, we've, we've built a, a pretty incredible team and um, it's been fast. It's been energetic. It's been uh, stressful at times. Uh, it's been hard work. Um, but uh, yeah, no, we're, we're enjoying it. Um, we're about 100 staff now and um, Closed a record-breaking Series A this this year in uh, in May with uh, EQT leading that round, but supported by Augmentum FinTech PLC and Fuel Ventures, um, which has really um, fueled our growth and uh, allowed us to, to to build on the vision and the and the and the the dream that we have. And um, certainly a marathon, not a sprint. This uh, thing that we've set ourselves upon: real-time payments everywhere. But uh, it's uh, certainly very exciting, and uh, we're having a, a great time. So. Um, Lots more to come, but uh, looking forward to a uh, Christmas break uh, right now. I can imagine. Yeah, being a busy year. Yeah, because pre-show we discussed, we, you went from 15 last year to 105 today. Yeah, that's right. That's quite but, the growth. Um, 530, 40% growth um, in the year. I'm a, I'm a strong believer that, that great teams built great businesses, you know, and... Um, People and talent and um, talent acquisition and reten- uh, retention is just uh, critical um, because from your people come all of your ideas, they come execution, they come everything. Um, you know, and the, the, the thing that uh, really differentiates you as a team and as a business is, is your people and uh, your ability to execute. And so, um, yeah, talent and team and, and all that sort of stuff is very central to my philosophy and my belief system. And, um, you know, we've certainly, certainly got a really high quality uh, group of people involved on this one. And um, it shows, I think, you know, with uh, some of the products we've launched and some of the early things that we've been doing, um, but there's a lot more to come. We're only just getting started. So it's very exciting. Yeah, great. Is, is that um, kind of what you see involved now, let's say since the Series A, it's almost been a year now, have you seen a similar trajectory in IFX or do you see much differences in the way that you operated there and the way that you grew? Uh, it's been six months only since the Series A, six yeah. or seven months. Um... At Fourthline, we use tech for good. We build products that have a major and long lasting impact on the online financial ecosystem. 
We leverage a highly automated KYC product with a core of machine learning technologies, making us the most reliable fraud detection platform for KYC. As a product lead, you will take responsibility for an entire product suite in one of our critical verticals. Interested? Reach out to Tom Franken. Email in the description below. No, very different to IFX. We bootstrapped IFX, right? So it was uh, myself and, and Nick Williams who founded that business back in 2005. And uh, we were reinvesting uh, our own profits and um, IFX money back into growth. So it's more of an organic strategy. Um, IFX now turns over uh, multi-billion dollars a year and it's, it's a great platform and a big business, but that took, uh, yeah, 15 years whilst I was there, I think, uh, 16, 17 years now, um, IFX has been established. So a different trajectory, but a, a different strategy, you know, not one where um, like open banking, there is a global platform and a global opportunity emerging and you've got to be able to move fast. So um, VC funding and, you know, um, investor backing in, in this particular strategy at uh, Vault is really a prerequisite because you've got to be able to move fast enough to capture the opportunity. You can't wait for the profitability to come to reinvest. That's just, you're going to get left behind if, uh, if, if you're trying to bootstrap in this space. So um, yeah, completely different. And it's been a, a great learning experience for me, actually. I, I'd never worked with VCs prior to Vault. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been different, but uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Because you say Vault, you talk about open banking. I mean, Vault is best described, I guess, as an open banking payments company. What's the vision of Vault? What's the vision you have with Vault? Yeah, so open banking payments here in Europe. And, and uh, we identify as an open banking company in Europe. Um, and we are a proud open banking company. Um, but in the main, because that's what real-time account payments is called here. But there is a wave of innovation sweeping the planet. Um, based on this concept of open banking, which is really this idea of authorized third-party access to a bank account such that you can circumvent the card schemes and you can initiate a direct account account payment where funds increasingly move in real time. Um, and whilst we identify that as being open banking here in Europe, in Brazil, it's called PIX. In India, it's called the Unified Payment Interface. In Australia, it's called the New Payments Platform. In Singapore, it's called Fast Pay Now. So, despite the fact that these schemes and systems come by different names and in different guises, they are all performing that same underlying function, which is this new innovation that allows for account access such that you can um, disintermediate the traditional card supply chain and, and um, bring, you know, real-time value exchange to, to commerce transactions and to peer-to-peer -peer transactions. And um, it's worth pointing out that and, and no one at Vault is, is a, a card system basher. We, we, we've got a huge amount of respect for Visa and MasterCard and everything they've accomplished. But um, the technology that underpins their business was designed in the 1950s. And it's fundamentally the same today as it was then. Um, there have been some iterations and some, uh, you know, some, some movement. But the, the four-corner four corner model that underpins a card transaction is uh, the same now as it was 70 years ago. And it's... Um, it's really remained preeminent and dominant now through lack of credible alternative, but open banking does represent a generational shift to a new real-time payment system. And uh, the fundamentals for me, are, I mean, let, let me take Brazil as a case in point. In Brazil, if you're in Sao Paulo buying a coffee um, and your BP card, um, that, that coffee shop will receive their money on average 28 days later. 
Um, and with uh, that market, as with all markets, uh, it's, cards are susceptible to fraud and uh, there's a fair bit of that goes on. There's a lot of intermediaries and middlemen involved in a card transaction flow, getting from one account to the other. Um, and with the launch of PIX, which is their equivalent of, you know, real-time account for account payments, um, 28 days became two seconds. Card fraud was eliminated and uh, costs were substantially reduced. So, um, you know, the upside for merchants and the value that that brings to businesses, um, I think speaks for itself. Transformative is a big word, but we think it's befitting of, of that sort of shift. Um, and this is what we're seeing all over the world, you know? Um, and, you know, we are, we are fundamental believers that real time becomes a new expectation. Um, and uh, that, um, you know, this open banking movement has got a very significant role to play in the future of payment services and that the trajectory of payment services, we understand them um, or have understood them anyway over the last 60, 70 years is vastly different over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years to what it has been in the past. And that, that includes a forward look to, you know, Web3 and to what's happening on the chain. It includes central bank digital currencies and various things that are on the horizon, which are, which are certainly going to have a role to play in our strategy in the future, but um, a little bit too early to kind of uh, place your bets on that one yet. But uh, certainly the, the, the concept of value exchange and money moving as fast as information, I think is plausible and is on the roadmap for our industry in the next five to seven to eight years. I don't think anybody quite knows, but I think this idea that it takes two days to get money to Australia we accept just because that's the way it's always been. But uh, I don't think that that uh, past performance is something that we should accept in the future. And I think that there's a new innovation um, coming that, 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 uh, that results in global instant payments becoming a reality uh, in the foreseeable future. And that's very exciting. I can imagine, yeah. It sounds like indeed there is lots of opportunity across the globe. Is the opportunity of similar size everywhere or is there certain parts of the world where the opportunity is bigger? Because obviously we know Europe very well being our home turf, but is the opportunity the same size, maybe even bigger in the likes of Brazil, Asia, Australia? I guess the, uh, I guess it's a good question. I guess the BRIC nations have had the benefits uh, of, you know, almost skipping a generation, you know, like you look at India and the unified payment interface, it's a real-time account-to-account payment mechanism in that country, which is leading and dominant and preferred by consumers. You look at PIX in Brazil, and uh, although it was only released in November or launched in November last year, um, it is already, um, you know, the dominant uh, method of payments in that country. So um, they've got a, a huge advantage, I suppose, and that they've been able to, um, you know, jump in their time machine and go straight to the future. You know, one, one of the challenges that we have in, uh, Europe and the US is that um, we've got legacy, you know, and um, uh, that, that legacy kind of uh, makes us slower in making that shift. But markets, I think, um, um, in terms of what markets are interesting, the countries around the world that are rolling out the new real-time payments infrastructure, some are more advanced and more market ready, bank readiness is there, the system designs are, are stronger, et cetera, et cetera. So there are, lower hanging fruits in some countries than in others. And I guess what we're doing at Vault is monitoring that situation and you know, following the sun as to going to the markets where market readiness is, is there. Um, so 
for example, open banking across the UK and Europe is not yet real time, but we hope and expect and anticipate that that will happen on a ubiquitous basis in the foreseeable future. Um, the European Commission, uh, last I heard, are making an announcement on, on their current public consultation on SEPA instance in June next year. Um, and, uh, you know, we hope and expect that um, the Commission are going to mandate SEPA instance on all uh, banks and financial institutions across uh, the Union. And um, that would result in a, a ubiquity of uh, instant payments um, at some point later in 22 or 23, I presume. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Brazil with PIX, everything already is real time. In, in India with UPI and um, PayNow and Singapore, et cetera. Now the US is another good example. Obviously the US is the largest economy in the world. Um, it's a very fragmented banking market over there though. And when you're considering open banking, it does depend on is determined by to a large degree bank readiness and there are over 9,000 or 10,000 banks in Europe uh, sorry in the US and um, you know there are the big names that we all know from from you know Manhattan and uh, you know other other big centers like JP and Mallon and all those guys but uh, you know there's a lot of smaller banks and when you're dealing with a payment instrument that is bank operated and accounts initiated that bank readiness factor is 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 really key, um, but there's a there's discussions there going on at the moment around Fed now, which is something that they're expecting to launch. Um, the Fed are working towards launching in 2023. Fed now is their version of what we call open banking payments, or what the Brazilians call PICs. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of markets for us, we're really keeping an eye on uh, what we've launched in Brazil already. We launched there um, two or three weeks ago. Um, Australia with the new payments platform that's really, really uh, taking off. So that's on our radar and something that we're watching closely. Singapore uh, is another one. So, um, and then the US is something that we hope to uh, tackle when the time is right. But um, really like we are um, led by market readiness and, and bank readiness in these different geographies and where the systems and the, um, the platforms are, are, are most ready for adoption ultimately. Um, and um, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll uh, continue to follow that path uh, during 2022 and beyond. Interesting. What about regulation? Is that a big part as well that determines whether or not you guys will be more successful, less successful, should launch, should not launch? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, and and you, need, you need that regulatory um, support, certainly. I, I think it's more determined, though, by the models that different um, regulators have adopted historically. I think... The UK and Europe, I mean, open banking was a UK concept which became European and now has become global, right? Um, and they were first movers in that respect. Um, and sometimes it's a disadvantage to be first mover because you don't have the opportunity to learn from others' mistakes. <laughs> and with Europe, we took what I, what I would term a, a, a bottom-up approach where there's 6,000 something banks across the UK and the EU and uh, each of those banks was mandated under PSD2 to publish an API for account information services and payment initiation services. But, but of course, there are, there's one European Commission, but there are 26 states, and each of those states has um, you know, their own national competence authority or their own regulator. And there has been historically, and this is less so now and improving all of the time, but there has been historically a great deal of fragmentation because when you're not only dealing with 6,000 banks who each have to publish an API, but then you're dealing with 26 states 
where that regulator may be taking a slight different interpretation or view of the order. And then somehow you've got to wrestle that towards a single class and a single standard and a harmonized interface across um, that, that United States of Europe, you know, and um, that is why open banking has taken some time um, to really find maturity and to, to find its feet. But certainly over the last three, six and nine months, um, I mean, we at Vault have seen conversion rates triple. We've seen error rates uh, hit rock bottom below 1%. We've, um, we've seen the general performance and stability of the API framework across Europe really, really uh, strengthen a great deal. Um, to take a case in point, in, in the Netherlands, Ideal has obviously been really prevalent in that country for a long time. And at times, at the moment, um, with our open banking interface uh, in that country, we are converting at conversion rates higher than Ideal. Um, so, you know, but is open banking a mass market product? Does it work as well in all of the other 25 countries as it works in the Netherlands or the UK or, you know, one or two others? Not yet, but, you know, it is a matter of law and we will get there. Anyway, getting back to the case in point, that is a model where it's bottom up. So finding that conformity and that stability has been more challenging. Whereas if you look at the uh, examples of Brazil or India or Australia, they have taken more of a top-down approach where they've got a central switch and a central system that all of the banks connect to. So if you can connect into that single switch or system, then there is complete conformity, conformity in a, and harmonized sort of top-down model, which finds maturity just faster and, and you know, it, it's just less complex. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, hindsight can be like that sometimes, right? Um, you can't unfortunately wind the clock back and, and change the approach, but uh, that that uh, has been one of the challenges where, um, you know, the, the maturity of that open bank infrastructure has, has taken some time, but um, it's got a huge amount of political support. Um, you know, both regulators on both sides of the English Channel in, in the UK and in uh, the European Union uh, are very pro open banking. They, um, they want to introduce more innovation and competition. They want to not be so reliant on, you know, the big Americans, Visa and MasterCard. They um, see open banking as having a significant role to play in, uh, you know, the future of payment services and, you know, how we as European consumers sort of interact. Um, the API interface allows for an embedded experience, allows you to really embed the payment into the, into the shopper uh, experience and so on and so forth. So there's no doubt we will get there. You know, it's getting better all of the time. And uh, I don't mean to be uh, speaking negatively about it because things are really great and adoption is fantastic. And all of the biggest brands in, in the world really are, are actively looking at it and implementing it and going live with their open banking strategies. So um, certainly the momentum is picking up in a really big way and uh, it's exciting to be part of it. Yeah, what's, I mean, I'm obviously biased, right? To having uh, Jordan as being the founder of PCN and also being one of the co-founders alongside you with... Uh, with Volt and the fact that you guys are a client, but I see Volt as one of probably one of the few open banking companies which is so successful. Uh, I guess there's many out there who jumped on the opportunity, especially within Europe. What do you feel makes Volt so successful? Is it the team? Is it the technology? Is it the connectivity? Is it all of the above? Or what is it that makes you guys so successful? Well, there's about five ways I can answer that question. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Is it, is it the team? Yes. Uh, and and we're, we're a team first organization, you know, um, and uh, we're a family and uh, we, we all kind of, um, 
we have a philosophy of, of uh, togetherness, you know, throughout, throughout collective opportunity, we, we can work together to achieve great things. And that's, that's awesome. And uh, that's paramount for us. Um, product, of course, and some of the um, nuances in our uh, approach and strategy, and that we are really the payments orchestration layer for open banking payments in Europe, which brings by far the greatest reach of any open banking company in the market today. It brings resilience to the network by um, removing single point of failure and by um, having the capacity to smart route based on availability and performance, uh, akin to a multi-acquirer strategy in the cards world. Um, if you're a Netflix or a Spotify or you know, anyone, British Airways, whoever, you don't typically just work with Stripe or Checkout.com or Adyen, right? You, you make sure that you've got multiple routes and you know failover and resilience and redundancy built into your payment strategy because I mean these guys are processing 40 50 60 70 payments a second you know for every working second of every working month a lot of them um, and uh, you know it's it's mission critical to make sure that they've got that resilience built into their network and, and our strategy being that payments orchestration layer and that super gateway that kind of allows us to have multiple touch points to most banks in our network is is really central but we launched recently Circuit Breaker, which is the first anti-fraud toolkit for the open banking industry. We launched earlier this year Connect, which is our cash management suite for collections and reconciliations for payouts. So there's only so much that PSD2 provides for. Really, ultimately, it just provides for the raw technical connectivity to the bank so that you can communicate to the, with the bank for payment initiation, account information services. But there is so much more over and above PSD2 that you need to do in terms of productizing your solution such that it addresses operational readiness and the practical business requirements of payments teams. Like payments teams need reconciliation and exceptions. They've got to have anti-fraud. They've got to have payouts and refunds, FX capability. And PSD2 out of the box just does not address any of those things that I've just mentioned, not one of them. Uh, and so, you know, if you want to, if you want to transform you know, that PSD2 interface into something that is uh, a payments ready product. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of thinking and, and uh, product build that you need to do over and above and outside of the scope of PSD2 that's necessary. And that's really been our approach. And uh, we've got a, a super team of um, pretty experienced payments industry people around. And um, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're staying humble, we're keeping our head down and um, you know, learning every day and making sure that we're, we're growing together. But uh, we, we feel like we've, um, we've made some pretty good calls so far and we want to just keep on, keep on progressing that, uh, that work that we're doing in the years ahead. Exciting. So it's payment orchestration ability, basically, the team that you have, as well as you guys building value-added products, let's say, on top of just the PSD2 payment capability or at least that PSD2 offers the ability to pay. Yeah. Um, well, there's much more that comes with that. Yeah, one example of this is like when, when we're initiating payment from a bank in, in Europe, we will get a success callback or a, a fail callback from the uh, from the bank. And uh, fail speaks for itself, but success does not actually mean that that bank have sent the payment. What it means is that our message format was correct. They've understood the request. And um, Thank you very much like we we know what you're asking us to do if the bank then determined for whatever reason insufficient funds in the bank account or um there may be some pep or sanction or fraud issue uh if the bank then determined that they will not send the payment they also do not let anyone know 
So there's a sense in which once you receive that success notification, that is the end of your visibility. Like you can't see past the end of your nose in that respect. Um, and therefore you're not actually able to confirm or otherwise determine whether the bank actually sent the money. You're not able to measure performance, response times, um, you know, how long the transaction actually takes. Um, you know, there's a big data set that you need to build around open banking that you can only get if you can see the whole value chain, if you can see the full payment lifecycle, which is why we issue a virtual IBAN to insert ourselves into the money flow. Then using some webhook functionality, we, we, we can send the success. We can then also send the so important confirmation of funds notification when money actually arrives in the account, at which point the merchant knows that those funds are guaranteed and, and can, then, um, can then ship the goods. Until then, though, and without having that visibility, uh, we as a third-party provider, or a TPP as we are um, qualified under, under the regulatory regime, uh, are otherwise not able to get visibility of conversion, whether funds are arriving, how quickly they arrive, um, you know, whether a user is a fraudster, or, you know, there's, there's so much data that you need and you need to glean from, which you can only get by getting into the money flow. That then brings into play reconciliation and exceptions management. That then brings into play FX. That then brings into play payouts and refunds because all of a sudden you're in the money flow, right? So you can now see the full value chain. You understand the full payment life cycle. You can understand response times, performance, conversion, you can optimize conversion. You can optimize the whole experience. And that's just crucial. We were the first to market with our product connect, which is our virtual IBAN solution. Um, others have now launched theirs. Um, but uh, we were also first to market with, with Circuit Breaker, which is the anti-fraud anti -fraud tool and, and product, product and toolkit. So um, yeah, we think that, uh, we think that you know, we're, we're, we're one of the thought leaders in this space. You know? um, and as much as, as it is a, a recognition and a, and a success race, it, it's also a product race and a, and a thought leadership race. You know, it's about how you address this. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's about how you address this opportunity from a product perspective that ultimately delivers, um, you know, to the needs of um, the payment teams in these in these companies and. Um, what they what they care about is conversion. What they care about is you know understanding you know the full payment life cycle and what's happening at each step within that within that cycle and, and being able to optimize performance and optimize optimize conversion and these other these other key KPIs that, that, that are real focuses for them. I love that. I love how you basically are involved in molding that whole open banking payments infrastructure or environment, if you will. It's really interesting. What what yeah. is what are you guys working on now? What do you see as kind of the biggest opportunity at the moment that, that Volt is, is working on? So it's really uh, our, for, for 2022, um, it's going to be our um, internationalization, which is uh, key and is quite unique to the Volt story. And that I mentioned earlier, there are 58 countries rolling out around the world. And I, I mentioned also that we've just launched in Brazil with PIX. Uh, Australia is on the roadmap for next year, probably Singapore, possibly the US, um, a couple of other markets. And what's interesting is that where Visa and MasterCard have had this single proprietary network um, and huge kudos to them for everything they've achieved and for their teams, they're incredible businesses, of course. But as we discussed also, that, that technology is pretty old. Um, but yeah, where they've had this single proprietary network, which is centrally owned and 
uh, controlled. These new real-time payment systems are domestic. They're owned and operated by the authorities and the regulators and by ultimately the banks in each domestic market. Being domestic, they are fragmented uh, from one another. So whilst they're performing the same underlying function, um, they've all gone about it a slightly different way and they're all speaking a slightly different language. And as we are the payments orchestration layer for open banking and the super gateway that connects the TPPs here to deliver that reach and resilience, our international strategy is an extrapolation of that in that we are building a single point of access to the world of real-time payments such that we can harmonize those networks to a single class and a single language so that you can communicate and you can interoperate um, between those different disparate schemes and systems um, using one set of API calls and, and uh, one language ultimately. Um, and in that way, stitching together the new you know, global instant payments network. And um, you know, what, uh, what, we, what we need to do is we need to identify which markets are, are, are most ready to, to plug in. And, but as an example, you, know, you can communicate already with us via our API um, between open banking right across the European Union and in the UK and now in Brazil using exactly the same API calls. So it's a, it's a, single, it's a single language that allows you to communicate and interoperate with uh, the banks in Sao Paulo and Rio, as well as the banks in Berlin and uh, London and um, Rome. So uh, that's, uh, that's something that we want to extend to Sydney and to Singapore and to New York and, and Los Angeles as well. And, um, you know, we, we think that, that, uh, that that's uh, pretty exciting. Um, but yeah, it's uh, certainly a marathon, not a sprint. It's yeah. early days, so we're not getting ahead of ourselves, but that internationalization piece is, is going to be um, uh, a big part of our agenda through 2022, 23, uh, and beyond, I, I, I'd imagine. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, that's uh, where my head is at. Very exciting. Hey, Tom, if people want to follow your story, if people want to find out more about Vault or... I keep track of that internationalization next year. Where should they go? LinkedIn is where we, uh, we're most prominent. Um, I'm uh, always available on the phone if people want to pick up the phone and have a chat. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn is probably the place to um, keep an eye on. That's where we tend to do most of our corporate communications. But uh, yeah. Great. Yeah, I think there's also quite a lot of stuff to find on your blog uh, on vault.io. Uh, yeah. When it comes to the products you mentioned, uh, expansions, uh, partnerships with the likes of Worldline, also with IFX okay. and many others. So, and uh, also with the uh, incredible uh, PCM, uh, they are pretty prominent in uh, in uh, looking after us at Vault and and uh, keeping a track of everything that's going across the fintech space. Yeah, it's exciting to uh, to work together with you guys, and I hope to continue doing that in 2022 and uh, for now uh, thanks uh, Tom for being on the show uh, I think it was exciting to hear a bit more about your vision where you're taking Vault uh, and I guess it's about watching this space for what's going to come next watch this space man we're just getting started thanks for here thanks very much thank you for checking in with FinTech if you enjoyed this week's episode subscribe like and leave us a comment below we'll be having more industry leaders next week tune in next week for more Thanks for listening, and we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner Free Your Girl, who are dedicated to fighting child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free Your Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online 
forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freeagirl.com for more information. Thank you.